1: Hello, everybody. Welcome back to This is the Place, a podcast channel from The Common Magazine on the New Books Network. The Common publishes literature and art with a modern sense of place. Next, we'll be talking to Omer Freelandler, Freelander, Freelander excuse me, about his story, Operation Tamar, in the spring issue of The Common. I'm Emily Everett, managing editor of the magazine and host of the channel. Today's guest, Omer Friedlander, grew up in Tel Aviv. He has a BA in English Literature from the University of Cambridge and an MFA from Boston University. He is a Starworks Fellow in Fiction at New York University. His short story collection, The Man Who Sold Air in the Holy Land, and his novel, The Glass Golem, are both forthcoming from Random House. Omer Friedlander, thanks for joining us.
0: Thanks so much for having me.
1: It's great. I wonder if you could begin by describing where you're living now, where you're calling from, so we can have a sense of place for this conversation.
0: Sure. So I'm calling from Tel Aviv, um, and there's this big um, public garden outside my window where usually kids kind of slide down the the slope of this kind of grassy slope on pieces of cardboard and, and stuff like that. But <laughs> with the lockdown, <laughs> that's happening kind of uh, less. But I, I kind of remember because I I grew up here and I remember going with my brother to, there was um, a bomb shelter in our neighborhood, which kind of ties in with the story we'll talk about. Um, But uh, we would go there and you could kind of climb up on the roof and slide down the, the kind of, the roof was kind of at an angle and you could slide down the cement. um, And we'd always kind of, you know, scrape our elbows and, and knees and rip our pants and stuff. So, I think our parents kind of got mad because they had to fix the pants and buy new ones. And so we <laughs> kind of stopped doing that at some point.
1: That's great. That is a wonderful sense of place for this conversation. <laughs> um, and, and a great a great segue into what I'm going to ask you to do next, which is to read a few paragraphs from the opening of your story and then describe what the piece is about for our listeners who may not have read it yet.
0: Abba sent us around the neighborhood to cut down Sabwa using a, na- a knife taped to the handle of a broomstick. We severed the fruit heads, rolled them a few times on the grass to get rid of their thorns, and dropped them into a bucket. Tamal sat on Iran's shoulders, her small dancer's body leaning forward to reach the cactus with the bucket. I handled the broomstick, severing the purplish-orange prickly pear from the body of the cactus. When we were done, Tamal took the fruit to her mom so she could make it into jam. Once it was ready, we stored it in the bomb shelter, along with the rest of the emergency supplies. The shelter was in the basement of our building, and we shared it with three other families. Tamal arranged the supplies carefully, as if she were handling explosives. Jars of blueberry and raspberry jam, white bread, dark bread, apples, peaches, and tin cans, stacked one on top of the other, filled the corner of the room. She wore a turquoise skirt and matching top. Iran grabbed Tamal's hips from behind, making her jump. Iran, watch it. I almost dropped this, she said but she didn't look angry. Her lar- large eyes were playful. Her mouth was qu- quivering slightly as she struggled not to smile. I wanted her to look at me the way she looked at my older brother. Um, so Operation Tamal is set in Jerusalem during the Six-Day War in 1967. And in this opening section, which I just read, you can kind of see that the story is, is a love triangle. So the narrator, 14-year-old boy is in love with his next-door neighbor but she only has eyes for his older brother. Um, and the first half of the story follows this trio of characters in the build-up to the war, where they do some you know, normal things like going to see a movie or going to the beach, but also they prepare the bomb shelter and board up the windows and paint the car lights black and things that are maybe only normal in Israel. And the second half of the story zooms in on them, hiding in a bomb shelter uh, with their families in kind of constricted space with no privacy and a lot of tension.
1: That's great. Thank you for that summary. Um, I I do love how that opening just sets up the whole story right there, right in the beginning. Um, Can you tell us how you came to write this story?
0: Yeah, so it was actually inspired by my mom's experience. Uh, So she was seven years old uh, during the Six-Day War. And she grew up in Nayoth, which is a neighborhood in Jerusalem, kind of filled with, um, it's like an Anglo-Saxon neighborhood with, you know, like pine trees and university professors and when the war broke out she she was hiding in the bomb shelter with her mom and and her older brother and, and several other families in the neighborhood and my grandfather fought in the war and he was injured he was he was shot in the shoulder but he, I think he tried to hide it from my grandmother because he didn't want her to worry or something um, and I think my mom didn't understand exactly what was going on she was very young but she remembered you know being scared and the kind of claustrophobia of being in that in a tight kind of space and the radio transmissions uh where they got the news and another detail which I which I used in my story was that um my grandmother kept this rat poison uh in case we lost the war basically and my mother only found out about that later but she she told me and I put that in the story
1: yeah it's fascinating there's so many great details in the story and they're even more interesting to find out that they're um autobiographical, at least to your older generations. Um, Now, as you know, The Common publishes publishes writing with a modern sense of place. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the role setting plays in this story for you, what you think it adds to the plot or the characters or just the feeling in general.
0: Yeah. So I think, so half the story happens in this kind of space of the bomb shelter, which is, it was tricky because I needed to find a way for the characters to still be involved in in the war, but also be cut off from it and kind of um, in this bubble. Um, So when I kind of figured out that the war can infiltrate the bomb shelter through the radio, which they had with them in the shelter, and they listened to transmissions and news broadcasts and things like that, then the story kind of clicked into place for me more. Um, And I also wanted the ending in terms of the setting to circle back to the beginning in some ways, because I, I describe in the beginning, um, you know, the neighborhood with the olive trees and bougainvillea know, bushes and things like that. And then at the end, when they come out of the shelter, there's this smog that hovers over everything and the cacti and olive trees are coated in white ash and the blossoms of the bougainvillea bush are scattered in the rubble. And a lot of the houses are kind of riddled with bullet holes.
1: Yeah, I think the, the setting in the story sort of splits into two halves for me. And in the beginning, it feels really expansive. You know, The characters are out picking fruit, walking to and from school, they're going to the movies, they play in, in a beautiful, colorful market. But the second half is so claustrophobic because they're stuck inside the this, this shelter, um, like you said. Um, would you talk a little bit about building out both of those spaces and, and sort of making sure that the right feelings went along with them?
0: Yeah, so I think you're exactly right. And I wanted that kind of expansiveness in the beginning and kind of sense of lightness and weightlessness. so uh, even when Tamal climbs up on Elan's shoulders to pick the prickly pear and or when they go watch her in the ballet studio, she's kind of jumping around and she doesn't make a sound. Um, and there's the chaos of the market with all the colorful spices and the trip to the beach in Tel Aviv, and they have this sense of freedom when they're they're floating on the water and and kind of staring up at the sky and and the war is, is this kind of um, you know thing in the background, but they don't feel it yet. And then I wanted the second half of the story, um, like you said, everything kind of tightens around them, and the tension is increased, and they're all trapped in this really tiny space. And um, so they can hear the sounds of the war outside, but they have no idea really what's going on. They they listen to the radio, but they don't know what to believe, and they don't know how long the war will last, or you know if they'll win. Um, and there's no privacy in the bomb shelter. So I wanted to create that kind of atmosphere, um, which, which is kind of ripe for attention.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, reading it right now when we're all sort of in like semi-lockdown because mm-hmm. of the pandemic, I, I really, really felt that claustrophobia and the, the urge to be outside and sort of depending on the news for information uh, that definitely rang a little close to home. <laughs> um, now I wonder... This story takes place during the Six Day War, and it seems like a few of your stories explore issues of borders and conflict and cultural differences. So I wonder, when you write those subjects, do you feel a certain responsibility to get it right, sort of knowing that American audiences aren't familiar with those stories?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think um, it's really important to, to get you know things right when you're writing about a culture which is in your own or, or kind of um, about... something that you haven't directly experienced. Um, And I think in a lot of ways it it comes down to the quality of the writing, whether you can kind of convince your reader of the truth of the world that you're building or not. Um, And I think for the writing to be convincing about a place that's sort of foreign to your experience, you need to do research. Um, And I think beyond that, I think it's kind of a question of empathy and being able to imagine yourself as another person. And I think, I mean, that's the most important part of fiction because um, even as a reader, that's kind of what drives you to read is to be able to imagine what it's like to be someone else.
1: That's interesting. Do you, so do you think that you start with that intention when you're writing or are these just the stories that come to you because that's where you grew up and how you grew up and with, with those stories around you?
0: Um, so some stories, I, I wouldn't say they're, they're autobiographical, but some of them are kind of maybe adjacent to things I've experienced like there's a story I wrote called Altizachen which was a finalist for the Nelson Algren Award and uh, it's about two brothers who are junk collectors and their lives are filled with these kind of worthless objects Um, and they're dealing with the emotional weight of a dead father and the setting for the story is is a city in the north of Israel called Tzfat which is really interesting it's got this kind of spiritual history and Um, and I, I kind of, I was working there for a year during my national service. I was working with, with teenagers and I was living with a, in a, in a commune with eight other volunteers. And we kind of wandered the streets at night with this portable stove for tea and a backgammon board. And we kind of Mm -hmm. got to know some of the kids. Um, so a lot of, I mean, the, the place itself and a lot of these kinds of, uh, kids who were, you know, part of the. Kind of, they were ultra orthodox, but they kind of left the face of so their in this weird liminal space. Um, they kind of made their way into this story. Uh, but it's not my experience directly because I sort of grew up in Tel Aviv in a very secu- secular kind of background. But um, I was interested in writing about that place where I, I did spend a year.
1: That's really interesting. Um, I'd like to ask about um, this theme I, I think I see in your stories. You can certainly correct me if I'm wrong about it, but it seems to me that you've written a fair number of stories that center on brothers and I, I'd love to hear why you find that um, complex relationship interesting to write about.
0: Yeah, that's, that's really true. I, I do write a lot about brothers um, and I, I have a twin brother. Um, so I think, you know, with twins, things can kind of get competitive just like with any siblings, but I think with twins even more so. And you're always kind of comparing yourself uh, to one another. And the way it worked for us was kind of funny. Um so our parents never actually told us who was born first and we kind of (laughs) found out when we were seventeen, I think. Um and it was it was kind of weird because our our friends would ask and we would kind of say, No, we were born at the exact same time and they said that's pretty much impossible. (laughs) Um (laughs) and um and yeah, so I think eventually I don't remember who who kind of told us. So I I was actually born first, but I think by Mm -hmm. the time we we kind of um Knew that it didn't matter so much anymore. So I think it was kind of important for our parents to do that.
1: That's that's so interesting to me. I am also a twin. Um, oh wow! But uh, my sister and I are not very competitive. We are very similar. <laughs> <laughs> but I can definitely understand about why that would really come into your stories. So Those sort of like the the symbiosis of this relationship that's very close, but at the same time, sort of competitive and sometimes on the
0: outs. Mm-hmm.
1: Now. I remember reading your story when it first came through our submissions queue um, over a year ago, certainly. Um, can you talk a little bit about the editing process you went through once the story was accepted? I think you worked with Megan Tucker-Oranger, who was our previous fiction editor.
0: Yeah, the editing process was really great. I I remember we made this big change to the ending. So I think in, in the first draft, that what I submitted uh, to the magazine, then um, Adam's brother dies at the end of the story and it's just kind of, dramatic ending and um it happens after he runs away from the bomb shelter um and the ending didn't quite feel right i think either to me or or to megan and so in the revised version um adam actually you know sees his brother who's alive and, and well and he walks towards him and because of this jealousy between them and they both kind of love the next door neighbor um adam has this this thought which is which is terrible um that he's slightly disappointed that his brother didn't die. And I think the new ending um, came about in this, in this kind of editorial process and with the feedback. And I was kind of thinking about the story again. Um, So I'm really grateful for all the, all the insights. That is so
1: interesting to hear. I didn't remember that that had changed. Um, I will say it is just our favorite part of working at the common for all of us who do editorial work is is taking a great story and just, um, you know, making those small changes that make such a big difference. Cause to me, that is a very big difference in the story. Um, that ending moment, I think it really, um, it really encapsulates how for teenagers, for, for young people, the drama of the war and the drama of like a crush, like those feel like on the same level, those are like Mm -hmm. equal problems almost. And I think that that ending really, really focuses on that. Yeah. That's interesting. Um, I wonder if you could tell us about the Starworks Fellowship Program at NYU that you're part of and, and what you do there as a fellow.
0: Uh, sure. Yeah, it's it's um, this great opportunity. Um, it's part of a literary outreach program. So the fellows teach in non-traditional environments. Um, and I think this year, because of the pandemic, it's kind of different. Um, so I haven't actually started it yet, the kind of teaching parts. It starts in November, um, and I'll be doing these kind of uh, informal Zoom workshops at a residential hospital for disabled adults. Um, so I think every week, a different fellow makes a lesson plan, which could include a writing prompt, like, you know, writing an ekphrastic poem, which responds to a painting or something like that. And then the residents at the hospital can do that and share their work. But I think it's it's very informal. so. I'm mostly looking forward to just chatting with them and hearing their stories. And I think they really like kind of sharing. Um, so even if it's not so much about the actual writing, it's about kind of getting to know someone. and Hopefully everything will work out over Zoom.
1: Yeah, that's so interesting. I hadn't thought about how it would be different with the pandemic. Um, and I, I mean, I hadn't heard of that program before I saw it on your website. It sounds fantastic. Um, how many fellows are there?
0: That's a good question. I'm not sure. <laughs>
1: okay. It, it's just, it sounds like a, a wonderful opportunity. Um, and to do it at NYU, that sounds great. Um, in other good news for you, uh, last month it was announced that you've sold not one, but two books to random house for publication. And, uh, you have our enormous congratulations on that.
0: <laughs> um,
1: what can you tell us about the books and about the process?
0: Uh, yeah, so it was a kind of crazy couple of weeks. um, and yeah, so so basically, it was, it was a bit stressful, but kind of funny now, I guess, but I was on this birthday trip uh, to the Galilee, the north of Israel, um, and my twin brother and I just turned 26. And I had to talk on the phone to, to a bunch of editors who were, who were interested in the books. Um, and uh, so I was like, okay, I guess I'm gonna do it from the Galilee because um, it's gonna be stressful anyway. And um, we got to this village where we were staying and there was no phone signal or <laughs> electricity. It was this kind of old fashioned hippie place. Um, oh no. <laughs> <laughs> so lots of olive trees and stuff, but, but no phone signal. So, so my dad drove me around and we ended up finding, um, you know, signal at this hookah bar um, just off the highway. Um, so I made all the calls from the parking lot with these teenagers kind of riding around. On their motorcycles <laughs> and, Wow, that um, is
1: surreal <laughs> yeah
0: it was really weird and um but uh, yeah I mean I I feel really grateful um with with how it turned out and really really happy with how it turned out um Robin uh Desser at Random House is the editor and she's really wonderful and, and brilliant
1: so it's it's one short story collection and one novel is that is that right is she working on both of them
0: yeah. So we're, we're doing the short story collection first um, and then the novel.
1: That's so exciting. Wow. <laughs> but just hearing you talk about the phone calls, it just sounds like every writer's like anxiety dream, like the big important call <laughs> is finally here and you have no service. <laughs> Couldn't be worse. Yeah. <laughs> um, just one last question for you. What are you working on now and what's next? Uh, is it, is it the books? Are you working on new things?
0: Um, yeah. So I'm, I'm working on the books. I'm, the collections kind of first um, and I'm kind of juggling that with with a bit of work on the novel and which needs kind of a lot of research and uh, we sold a synopsis so it's basically in in kind of first draft stages Um, and yeah just doing classes at NYU taking a class with uh, Julie Oranger and, and a workshop with Kieran Desai and it's been really great
1: that sounds great that sounds really lovely Omer, thanks so much for joining us. It's been so great to talk with you.
0: Thank you so much. I had a great time.
1: Great. Listeners, you can read Omer's story, Operation Tamar, and subscribe to the latest issue at thecommononline.org.